This is what I've been saying, the three L's, listen, learn, and lead. The advisors to do that are the advisors that are going to win. The value of bespoke advice has never been higher. You're listening to Coindesk's On Purpose with OnRamp CEO Tyrone Ross, a licensed investment advisor and powerful storyteller. Tyrone has a passion for digital assets and their ability to disrupt our current way of life. This show is for advisors by advisors. Advise on purpose in the arising realm of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, Tyrone Ross. All right, welcome back to another episode of the On Purpose podcast. I am your host, Tyrone Ross, special guest in the building with me today as we continue the conversations on all things decentralized finance. I have our chief innovation officer at OnRamp, Akeen Sawyer, here with me today. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Fantastic. So as you know, being with us for a bit now, the building for the registered investment advisor space is a bit of a project. And we spoke about this before we were recording about a, a thread that you did that I think was phenomenal that kind of laid out the landscape of, of how you see it in terms of the scope of advisors work changing also with all of these inflection points and changes that have happened in, in finance. So walk through that really quickly. And I think it, it'll be a good way as well for us to lead into the conversation of where we think that, you know, decentralized finance is going to change the RA space overall. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are a few things to kind of just think about that are macro trends are driving the space. For one, the current generation, the millennials, right? I think they're going to be the largest generation in the history of the United States. There'll be a massive shift of wealth from the boomers to the millennials, right? As boomers retire and give up their fortunes to their kids and grandkids. So that's a big thing to note. And so the question then becomes, what are these millennials doing, right? And how is that going to impact the advisory space going forward? And if you look at the data, 94% of crypto buyers in the United States are between the ages of 18 and 40, 94%. Like that's a large number. It basically says that's basically who's buying and that's smack in the middle of, you know, the millennial generation. And, and then when you think about what millennials are doing in terms of work, new forms of work, engaging in DAOs, earning in crypto, building new forms of cooperatives online, digital natives, right? The future of work is also going to shift to these decentralized workplaces, right? To a large extent, our company is decentralized because basically work virtually um, I don't necessarily have one single physical location. As that begins to proliferate, you, you'll see more and more term of coin around just, you know, crypto natives who just are used to working in this virtual space and earning crypto to a large extent and creating value based on these tokens. So when you think about that, 10, 20 years from now, right, a large number of clients or advisors will be these millennials and advisors would need to really understand how crypto is impacting not just financial services, but impacting the world broadly in terms of how people work, where they work, how they transact, how they spend, right? How they choose to want to be involved even in investing, right? So we talked about this idea of it becoming more of a cooperative venture, or perhaps ultimately advisors are just doing what they do best, which is just giving advice. But to a large extent, you might have clients who are also trading for themselves. So how do you sort of manage that relationship going forward? where it's not just the advisor basically doing everything and directing your funds and your assets, 
but perhaps it's also the clients that are intimately involved and understand what their strategy and long-term goals are and are actively participating and executing that alongside the advisor, right? So I think all these things together paint a picture that I, mean, I don't think crypto is going away and it's not just going to be an asset class to millennials, as I think we often talk about it, it's going to be an intimate part of their whole lives. And it could also impact how they earn, how they transact, how they do everything. Those broad ramifications are very important to note. So on that end, right, I, I think one of the things that is important that I keep pointing out, there's a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old right now building a portfolio that would make most financial advisors' head explode. I tweeted something last week, an advisor reached out, found out, had a client with $11 million in DYDX token grants. And literally text me, it was like, what is this? What do I do now? So it is clear that we are, again, at an inflection point where financial advisors have to understand, to your point, a lot of this is going to happen away from you, that non-custodial type of relationship with the client, but also being conversant and getting educated on the space, which leads me here. Obviously, you are well known and, and respected within you know, the crypto ranks, but I just did a very, very, very high level look at DeFi in our last episode. So someone that is really in the trenches and understands it, what is decentralized finance to you? And what does it mean to you in terms of, let's not even, let's step away from the RAs for a minute, but just of how you look at it, the financial services overall, because I think that's where the future of, of finance is headed, uh, whether we like that or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just what you said. I, I think it's a massive paradigm shift in financial services and how people transact. I think if you look at the current financial system today, there are a number of problems that impede a lot of people participating. It's not permissionless, right? So there, there are lots of barriers to entry in terms of being able to participate, being able to provide the information you need to participate. So KYC information, as an example, there are many countries in the world where people do not have KYC. They don't have government IDs. They don't have social security numbers. Some people don't even have birth certificates. How do they participate in this global world if you need all that data and they don't even have it, let alone, you know, have the ability to provide it, right? So that's one issue, right? But second issue is the current financial system also introduces a lot of costs that makes it trivial maybe in the developed world, but in the emerging world, it's not. And in emerging markets, these are real costs that kind of block people who are in the bottom of the pyramid from participating. So when you kind of juxtapose that with DeFi, which is permissionless, open, global, right? All you need is a wallet and you can interact and engage. You know, it's very compelling to onboard a lot of people into financial services for the first time. But on the second side of that too, you know, looking at the actions of regulators where centralized authorities are trying to sort of bridge that gap with DeFi, right? So the, the exchanges that are trying to sort of build into DeFi and provide yield products and provide all the financial tools above and beyond just tokens, they're not being met with in my view, a collaborative regulatory system, right? It looks like the regulators are just trying to like shoehorn DeFi into traditional finance and into old models that just don't work. And I think what that would end up doing potentially is ultimately just pushing people straight to DeFi, right? Because if you cannot access the products that you want, if you're going to access, you know, all these new interesting products that give real utility and value through your centralized authorities or centralized locations, you'll ultimately just go into DeFi. Right. And as we said about earlier on, millennials are fairly savvy, right? They're the ones who are transacting in the space, right? As they begin to grow, they'll just say, look, if I can't access these products through centralized venues because regulators are 
being tight-fisted, we'll just go straight to DeFi. And I think that's where problems begin to come because how do you stop a permissionless network? And so my view is that you really can't stop it globally because there'll always be a place or a destination that will be friendly. We've seen El Salvador become the first Bitcoin country, right? I think there are more countries considering it in Latin America and there'll be more. And so as that continues to pick up, it's just a movement in my view that's going to be a massive paradigm shift. And it's also based, I think, the basis of a lot of this adoption too, um, that we should remember is that there's a lot of distrust in younger generations of the current financial system, right? A lot of millennials were kids when the financial crisis hit in the United States, right? And they saw the bankers get made whole. They saw their uncles, their parents lose their homes because they'd lost their jobs. The system bailed out those at the top and didn't do much for those at the bottom. When that core fundamental trust is removed, it now just becomes, what else can I do that gets me out of this system that is not fair? And I think that's some of the philosophical ethos that's driving people coming into DeFi because they just think it's a fairer game and a fairer financial system. And you know, no one is at the top picking winners and losers. So before coming on, as I do every day, I took a quick look at DeFi Pulse, right? And even with the market coming down a bit this week, I think you're still at, in what I just saw, 82.6 billion, right? In locked assets. And again, I think this is why, as you mentioned, the SEC is squarely looking at this as, wait a second, how did this thing get to almost 90 billion with <laughs> software, right? Lines of code. Is it, it's, they just can't wrap their heads around it. So before we leave this, and, and rarely are folks who are living in the future like you ask this, but what are you excited about? Is there a project or a protocol or something that you're excited about? And again, whether advisors care to look it up or not, but we'd love to know, is there something that you're excited about now that you either researched or have researched that you think folks should be aware of? I mean, I'm excited about a lot of, of what's happening in the space. You know, I'm excited about DeFi broadly. I think that you know, there's a lot of young talent coming to the space, building, experimenting, and innovating. And I think this is really the first time in over 100 years they are seeing real fundamental innovation in financial services, where the types of products you're seeing in DeFi, for example, even the lending market, where it's a peer-to-peer -peer based lending system, right? The protocol basically has replaced the bank, uses collateral rather than like credit. So you have to bring collateral in the system. Like Puma, I think that's not as capital efficient as the current financial system, but in many ways it is because you can automate these financial products and then you can compose on top of each other. So there's a view that you can use collateral multiple times, right, to gain capital efficiency rather than be under collateralized in a single position. And so you can get to the same place using a very, very different structure. And so I'm really excited about even just fundamentally the, the pure lending market, right, the large ones, Aave, Compound that have reached product market fit and continue to grow because that fundamental primitive is basically the fundamental primitive of finance, being able to borrow and lend beyond just putting deposit into a bank. The most basic function is, you know, borrowing and lending. And so if that primitive is right, right. And if there's, if there's a new way to think about how to borrow and lend leveraging these protocols and it continues to grow and we see billions and billions of retailers using it. And now we're seeing financial institutions also jump on the wagon because you know, the rates of return are just better, then that to me is what really excites me because that's the largest financial tool. Borrowing and lending is fundamental. And so if we get that correctly, then everything else has now a market to build upon. Derivatives markets, 
insurance, you know, on-chain asset management, where you can permissionlessly subscribe to an index fund or to an, an ETF-like structure, and you can do that in a permissionless way. And all the rules of how that portfolio works are enforced on-chain, right? So the fee system, everything, and it's all auditable by every participant. So you can, you can tell and you can always verify that it's working like it should, right? And so I think that's what really excites me. And I think ultimately, I think it feeds into how we should be thinking about regulation. Because if a lot of this information in the DeFi space is openly verifiable, and you can see and audit that information on chain, and you can know that, right, there's no counterparty gaming the system or necessarily able to abscond with funds, then, you know, I think regulation should also shift and realize perhaps regulators should now be running their own nodes, verifying that these things work and function correctly, and then leave the market to transact as it would. Because I think ultimately one of the biggest focuses of regulators is consumer protection. And if you can verify that consumers are protected, the platforms aren't gaming or aren't sort of at the margin, um, finding ways to rip off the principles, then what's there to regulate? So I think people also just need to remember, like regulation is not written into the U.S. Constitution. It's not a constitutional right for regulators to exist. And so where technology is now changing the nature of how their work should be done, then they need to shift to the times or they'll become irrelevant in the future. So a couple of things here, two questions that I want to pair together, but I mean, not necessarily one is, a, one is more of a statement, but back to one of your tweets where you mentioned on-chain analytics being the new 13F and then also moving into, you know, the second part of that, when you say on-chain, what does that mean and why is that so important? So you could take those in any order, but I think they go together. And one of the things why I've been trying to get financial advisors to understand long gone are the days of S1s and 13Fs and, you know, all of these other things, 10Qs. It's a new way of looking at data and information. So take that away in terms of, you know, the importance of on-chain and also what you mean, you know, that, that on-chain analytics are the new 13F. Yeah. So I think fundamentally, you know, information drives markets, which is why, like, we have laws in the books against insider, insider trading, for example. As a public company, like, material information should be shared with the public at the same time. So certain people shouldn't have access to information that you can act upon to their benefit such that the rest of the market doesn't know. Even though we have lots of these rules and laws in the books, like it's not perfect, right? And the system tries to, you have a whole space around disclosures, right? So 13Fs are disclosures that, you know, large buyers of, for those who don't know, large buyers of securities up to a certain point, if you have, if you buy a certain amount of a security related to one entity, you have to disclose what that is. Right. So a lot of asset managers are high net worth individuals who have large pools of capital that are deploying. They need to tell the public when they're taking those positions. But if you look at how 30F disclosures are done, it technically, I think it's done quarterly, if I remember correctly. And you have like 45 days to report. Right. So to a large extent, right, by the time you've actually had to report the data, it's taking quite a while. Right. And if that information is important for the market to know, how valuable is it for me to know potentially, you know, 180 days plus 45 days after you've made that trade? Like it's, you know, the information gets less and less valuable over time. And the difference you have in, in crypto and DeFi is every time someone transacts on a permissionless network, you know, the information is on chain, meaning there's a record of that transaction that sits on a public ledger that everyone can see. 
right? And that changes the nature of disclosure, right? Because everyone knows at any point in time, potentially, what everyone else is doing. The information is there and it's accessible and you're, you're, you're seeing more and more entities coming around that space and making that information even easier to access. You know, you have folks like Nansen, which is a, a data platform that actually has gone through a lot of painstaking work to tag wallets known to be owned by certain entities to kind of create a very, very robust database where you actually know not only what the transactions are, but to a large degree of accuracy, you know who's actually transacting because a lot of sleuths have sort of looked and found and figured out, right, who owns what wallet. And because all these things are linked, if you know one wallet, you can see the history of transactions that wallet has done with others. You can almost figure out the network of wallets that an entity might hold. So that changes the whole nature of disclosure, it changes the whole nature of what the market knows. And to a large extent, it just makes it fair, right? Because there are less dark places to hide in the market. And in traditional space today, there's still lots of places you can hide. And, and to a large extent, the financial crisis was caused by the fact that information that was material for the market and regulators to know wasn't known to them until it was too late. And we realized, wait, the market, you know, the mortgage market is way over leveraged and there's a lot of bad debt out there. So to me, you know, when you think about what DeFi means, it means to a large extent, you can have a much fairer and open market and every market participant, similar to how information just spreads on the internet. I think a good analogy, for example, is the time in history where you had to wait for the seven o'clock news or the paper the next day to know what was going on. Today, right, if you're on social media, you probably even know and get information faster than mainstream media because information just proliferates really quickly. I think the same thing is happening in finance with DeFi, where all that information will be publicly available to everyone. And it just makes it fairer and it makes it a fairer game, right? And when you can verify the rules of how these protocols work, you can verify the monetary policy undergirding these protocols, which are typically fixed or deflationary, right? It's just across the board, it's just a fairer game. And I think because of that utility, you'll have adoption because it's just superior to the current financial system. Fantastic perspective there, which leads me to this, and, and we can end on this note. As someone that is in it, right, and, and for the last six years, being an advisor, being in the crypto rabbit hole and looking at some of the issues and concerns and building to that now at OnRamp, and, you know, it's all running together now, I don't even know how long you've been with us, three months or so, but from a fresh perspective of what you sat in, rather in these calls and these meetings with myself and the ones that we take together, from an outsider and coming in, what do you see are the major barriers that is preventing advisors getting access to crypto, one, and two, how is it going to have to evolve further to make sure advisors get access to decentralized finance for their clients based on what you've seen and heard in the last three months? I think the major barriers is, is the incumbent system. When you look at all the things that are between a financial advisor and their client today, those are barriers to entry, right? Because the advisors are depending on technology that's often provided by a third party. They're depending on portfolio management systems, CRM systems, right? A lot of the things that make their work easy, that takes the administrative aspects and simplifies it so they can focus more on just the one-to-one -one relationship with their clients. Those things are barriers. Why? Because they've made it easy, right, for advisors to have a tech stack and an administrative stack that automates the execution of transactions. 
right? Um, and they've made it easy for us. So his advisors kind of scale, right? The number of clients they have one-to-one -one relationships with. And so unless those venues are providing access, right? The vast majority of advisors are not gonna adopt it because it's gonna increase the cost or the time they spend in trying to figure out another venue, right? It doesn't really work with their current model. So that's one barrier, right? And I think in the short term, as these venues see the value of crypto and begin to adopt it, then it kind of breaks down those walls, right? You meet the advisors where they are. Um, I think the second barrier and challenge that we're seeing is just a regulatory system where I think there's some amount of clarity, but there's still enough gray area. And I think some of it is just a lack of knowledge where there's just a perception that, okay, this is something you need to be very weary and careful about, right? And so many advisors probably don't know all the rules or don't have clarity on the rules that even already exist that say, yeah, there is a pathway to kind of providing advisory services and providing crypto. So that's, that's one thing. I think advisors need to even know what the current rules are and understand how they can provide access. But I think ultimately what I think is going to happen is that the current system is, is still going to be difficult and clanky, right? It's still going to be payment rails or require, you know, five to 10 days to settle transactions. Like that's not, this, in this century, it shouldn't take that long. You should have instantaneous settlement. Right. You can have that in DeFi. So my view is most of these clients will just go directly to DeFi. They'll have non-custodial wallets. I think that's what the future stack really is going to be. And folks just go direct to DeFi, right? There might be better UXs that are built to get them there. But then it will, it will essentially allow advisors to a large extent to just basically hop to a new stack, for lack of a better word, and just continue providing the advice and getting paid for the advice they provide. Right? And, and I just feel like that's the way it's going to end up going because a lot of the incumbents, a lot of the, the people who are basically you know, charging rents in the current financial system are not going to go away quietly. Right? They want to continue making profits as intermediaries. And that defeats the purpose of what DeFi is and the advantages you can get from it. So at some point, people are just going to say, look, I'll just go straight to DeFi if it's too onerous or if the intermediaries are either blocking my access or charging too much for it. Love it. Great perspective again. Thank you so much for joining. Again, we will do this more and more. I will bring Akeem back as we start to go further down the rabbit hole and continue to educate advisors. We have a, another webinar coming up where we're going to be talking about yield and staking and yield farming and all of that. But more importantly, I think OnRamp has been focused on educating advisors on this. If you haven't already, go to the Academy. Akeem has done some incredible work there. I mean, you guys all know what's coming. If you made it this far into the program, there's only one thing left for you to do. NoKidHungry.org. Uh, feed a hungry child if you can. Coming up October 6th, the Bitcoin for Advisors Conference with my Coindesk family. So if you haven't already signed up for that, like, subscribe, share to everything that we put out. Akeem, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, we will see you on the next one. I appreciate you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to On Purpose with host Tyrone Ross and guest Akin Sawyer. The show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Our new theme song is Walk With Swag. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.